Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 101, Space Shuttle Flight 30, STS-28. Spinners, Skulls, and Sparks. Last time, we celebrated the 100th episode of The Space Above Us, with a question-and-answer special. Once again, I'd like to say thanks to everyone who wrote in with such great questions. I had a blast answering them. I also have one bonus answer for you. As part of the Q&A episode, Philip wrote in to ask about the distinction between in-orbit and on-orbit. I didn't really have a great answer at the time, but fellow question-asker Chris from Houston came up with a reasonable explanation. Neither of us know for sure if it's the correct answer, so please take it for what it is, but it sounds about right to me. As Chris explains it, in the military, once an aircraft takes off, its status is in-flight. But once it arrives at its objective or patrol destination, its status becomes on station. The way Chris sees it, you're in orbit as soon as you hit orbital velocity. But once you're in the proper orbit for your mission and you're getting to work, you're on orbit. It especially makes sense when you consider the significant number of astronauts and other NASA folks with a military background, especially in the early days. So yeah, thanks Philip for the question, and thanks Chris for the better answer. But in order to quibble about in-orbit versus on-orbit, we must first get to orbit. So let's turn our attention to the mission at hand, STS-28. The flight would mark the first flight of Space Shuttle Columbia since the Challenger accident nearly 43 months ago. We last saw Columbia after completing STS-61C, just a few weeks before the loss of OV-099. 43 months is a long time, and the downtime was taken advantage of, so Columbia is not quite the same spacecraft we knew back in 1986, with numerous minor changes being made to NASA's first spaceworthy orbiter. There were a few that were visually apparent, such as relocating the spacecraft's name from the payload bay door to the side of the forward fuselage, or the replacement of numerous white thermal tiles with flexible thermal blankets. Some were less visually obvious, like upgrades to the auxiliary power units and fuel cells, or updated RCS valves that eased ground operations. Regardless of the visibility of the updates, the orbiter fleet was continuing to evolve and improve. Unfortunately for Columbia, its return to flight would be in the shadow of a classified mission, so many details about the flight were secret. As is typical with a Department of Defense flight, our crew is entirely composed of folks with a military background. In fact, among the crew, the Air Force, Navy, and Army were all represented, so a pretty big swath of the overall military had something to brag about with this mission. Let's go meet them. Commanding the flight was Brewster Shaw. We last saw Shaw flying as commander of STS-61B, keeping an eye on things while ease and access were put through their paces in the payload bay. This is his third and final flight. Joining Shaw up front was Dick Richards. Richard Richards, who seems to be the victim of one of these fun, lifelong prank-type names, was born on August 24, 1946, in Key West, Florida, but considers himself to be from Houston, Texas. He earned a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from the University of Missouri, and the next year picked up a master's in aeronautical systems from the University of West Florida. The same year that he got his master's, Richards signed up with the Navy, who taught him how to fly. Among the vehicles he learned to fly were the A-4 Skyhawk, F-4 Phantom, A-7, and F-18, focusing on automated aircraft carrier landing systems. He was selected as an astronaut in 1980, soon adding Space Shuttle Orbiter to his list of vehicles, and this is his first of four flights. 
Moving back in the flight deck, we find James Adamson. James Adamson was born on March 3, 1946 in Warsaw, New York. He earned a bachelor's degree in engineering from West Point and later a master's in aerospace engineering from Princeton. After graduating West Point, he joined the Army who taught him how to fly. Adamson has quite the list of accomplishments, including two distinguished flying crosses, 18 air medals, three Vietnamese crosses of gallantry for valor, a superior service medal, a defense meritorious service medal. The list goes on like this for kind of a while. Eventually, he became a test pilot, flying over 30 different type of aircraft and logging over 3,000 hours of flight time. He began working at the Johnson Space Center in 1981 as a research test pilot and was selected as an astronaut in 1984. This is his first of two flights. Mission Specialist 2 is someone who we know but haven't seen in a while, Dave Liestma. We know Liestma from his flight on STS-41G, which deployed the Earth Radiation Budget Satellite. We'll see him one more time, making this his second of three flights. And rounding out the crew was Mission Specialist 3, Mark Brown. Mark Brown was born on November 18, 1951 in Valparaiso, Indiana. He earned a bachelor's degree in aeronautical and astronautical engineering from Purdue, which is practically a ticket to space it seems, and later earned a master's in astronautical engineering from the Air Force Institute of Technology. In between those, he learned how to fly, joining the 87th Fighter Interceptor Squadron, flying the T-33 and F-106. Like Adamson, he also arrived at JSC before becoming an astronaut. He supported several early shuttle flights in the Flight Activity Support Room. But in 1984, he traded his seat in the Flight Activity Support Room for one in the Astronaut Corps, and this is his first of two flights. It occurs to me that I've been using a bit of terminology without properly defining it. I suspect many of you have caught on, but let's take a moment to be thorough. When I say that a launch was rescheduled, I mean that it had been set for some day in the somewhat distant future, but that date has changed. It's not uncommon for a flight to be rescheduled several times based on launch manifest needs, delays, and so on. The date was sort of a soft date. When I say that a launch was postponed, I mean that it had been scheduled for a particular day, but was called off before everybody came to work and got on console to actually get the mission underway. So the schedule was basically more set in stone, but the launch was called off with enough time to not really get into the final launch preparations. When I say that a launch was scrubbed, then liftoff was waved off on the day of the launch, after people had arrived on console, and often even after the crew had boarded the spacecraft. And when I say that a launch was delayed, I mean that the mission lifted off on the scheduled day, but not at the scheduled time, eating into its launch window a bit. Anyway, I mention this because STS-28 was postponed by one day due to a helium problem in the main propulsion system. The next day, August 8, 1989, the crew were fortunate to not experience a scrub, but they did have to wait around during a short delay. During the T-minus 9 minute built-in hold, a frame synchronization error in the network signal processor popped up, requiring a quick computer update. I'm not really sure what that means, but I can think of one listener who might, so maybe I'll have an update for you next time. After waiting around a little bit more to allow the early morning fog to burn off, STS-28 was given a go, and at 8.37am, Columbia lifted off for the eighth time. The shuttle stack rolled to the proper azimuth, the engines throttled down to reduce stress on the structure during max Q, they throttled back up, the SRBs separated, the main engines cut off, 
and the external tank was jettisoned. Nice and easy. Except poor Dick Richards was a little distracted during his first ride uphill. As the G-forces mounted, Pilot Richards' seat began to slide back on its rails. Eventually, it got so far back that he could no longer reach some of the controls, requiring him to scooch it forward a few inches. In the end, this was nothing super serious, but if he had been trying to troubleshoot an issue, like Charlie Bolden had to in the previous Columbia mission, it could have been a big deal. Later, once safely on orbit, the crew tried to recreate the problem and found the seat to be in perfect working order. That's a frustrating problem, but it did kind of make me laugh imagining this super highly trained crew on this technological miracle of a spacecraft futzing around with a wonky chair like anyone else. First on the agenda, probably, was deploying the primary secret payload for this mission. As always with classified missions, we can't be totally sure what it was, but folks usually had a pretty good idea. By assessing the state of other space-based assets, looking at the sizes of shipping containers, analyzing the orbital parameters, and of course, good old-fashioned rumors and leaks, it was possible to put together a solid guess for what a lot of classified payloads were. For example, the mission's 57-degree inclination orbit would make sense for deploying a satellite that needed to see large swaths of the Earth. For this flight, while the official press kit had nothing to say, contemporary sources strongly suspected that it was a new KH-11 reconnaissance spacecraft. They really strongly suspected it. These school bus-sized spy satellites were rumored to have incredible imaging capabilities, utilizing the latest and greatest in sensors, fine attitude control, and optics. It'd be just the sort of important and sensitive payload that the Department of Defense would want to keep quiet. So you would think that they must have been pretty annoyed when the likes of Aviation Week and Space Technology announced to the world exactly what Columbia was carrying in its payload bay. Instead, I'm betting that their reaction was one of mild amusement. Why? Because STS-28 was not carrying a KH-11. But let's pretend we don't know that yet. As is still the case today, the classified spacecraft was quickly spotted by folks on the ground. Some were professional astronomers, and some were interested hobbyists. But one thing the ground-based observers could agree on was that the spacecraft appeared to be tumbling. Looking at long-exposure photographs, a clear pattern emerged. Once per second, it flashed, with the sun glinting off the side of the spacecraft. The observers figured that they could expect two flashes per rotation, so whatever the DoD's new satellite was seemed to be tumbling at about 30 rotations per minute. That's not great. Imaging satellites need extreme attitude control and aren't going to be able to see anything while tumbling at 30 RPM. This prompted the space community to ask the DoD what the deal was. The DoD confirmed that there was indeed a problem soon after deployment, but that it had been resolved and the spacecraft was now behaving as expected. This was sort of confusing, since even after the DoD confirmed that the satellite was healthy, ground-based observers were still seeing this 30 RPM tumble. Even more baffling, eight days after being deployed, the satellite boosted its orbit from 315 kilometers to 460 kilometers, so it clearly wasn't dead in the water. What was going on here? Since the DoD wasn't exactly inclined to set the record straight, the KH-11 speculation and mysterious tumbling was all folks had to go on for a while. It wasn't until years later that the payload was revealed to be the SDS-2 communication spacecraft, where SDS stood for Satellite Data System. 
This will be fun for all of you since STS and SDS sound pretty similar, but at least the numbers are different. I'm not sure when SDS2 was declassified, but it's lucky for us that it was, because we get some details to pick over. And before you worry that I'm getting this from some conspiracy website, rest assured that my source is the NASA Space Science Data Coordinated Archive, which has a brief paragraph about the spacecraft. Instead of peering down with cutting-edge optics and reading people's license plates and such, SDS-2 was instead relaying communications between other classified satellites and the ground. One glance at the scrumbled-together nature of the secretive payload would have told you all you needed to know. It took the spacecraft bus, that is the main part, from a LeSat communications satellite, which is similar to what we've seen deployed on earlier missions. Attached to it were two 15-foot-wide high-gain antennas borrowed from the TDRS program, with a third 6-foot dish serving as a K-band downlink for the ground. Suddenly, the mysterious tumbling makes a lot of sense. A LeSat-based communication satellite wouldn't have the same attitude requirements as an imaging satellite. In fact, the previous LeSat satellites we've seen were all, oh hey, look at that, put into a 30 RPM spin. Mystery seemingly solved. There's one other clue that might have steered people away from the KH-11 theory, but I'm not sure if this clue was available at the time. These days, we know that the KH-11 supposedly has a pretty similar design to the Hubble Space Telescope. We also know, or at least will in a few episodes, that the Hubble was deployed from the shuttle using the Canadian-built robotic arm mounted in the payload bay. And lastly, I checked some Canadian Space Agency resources, and sure enough, there was no Canadarm on this flight. Classified missions are annoying, but I suppose it is sort of fun when we can put some of the puzzle pieces together like this. Though we never did find out what that initial problem after deployment was. Alright, moving from one mystery to another, I think I owe you all an explanation about last week's teaser. STS-28 had a five-person crew, so why was it that there were six human skulls on board? This is pretty weird. Scientists wanted to better understand how radiation was affecting astronauts and specifically wanted to know how much radiation was penetrating their brains. To work that out, you would need some radiation sensors and a device that would absorb radiation in a way similar to a human skull. And really, you can't get much more similar to a human skull than using an actual human skull. So down on the mid-deck, tucked away in a locker, was a very special skull. And if it wasn't weird enough already, it was called the Phantom Head. <laughs> there was even a Phantom Head mission patch. The skull was purchased by NASA for 1500 bucks, which is apparently something you can just do, and the identity of the previous owner is unknown. You know how people talk about donating their body to science? Well, this person apparently won the Donate to Science lottery, since this was the first of three flights their head would ride on. That's better than a lot of astronauts. The skull was carefully sliced into 10 layers, covered in around 100 radiation sensors, and then filled with a plastic that would react to radiation in a similar way to, well, the stuff that normally goes in the skull. After the skull was instrumented and reassembled, it was also covered in another layer of plastic that would absorb the same amount of radiation as skin. All in all, this experiment was pretty freaky, but if you think about it, what better way could there possibly be to get this sort of data? Still freaky, though. Less Freaky was a system that's actually been around for a few flights now, but I have never seen a good chance to talk about it. Tags. 
the text and graphics system, or TAGS, is one of these things that doesn't sound like a huge deal to us in the year 2020, because we're so completely spoiled by technology. TAGS was, essentially, a fax machine for the space shuttle. We're already familiar with space-based teleprinters going all the way back to Skylab, but those were all limited to text. You can get a lot done with plain old text, but it did leave something to be desired when attempting to convey information like maps or schematics. Tags upped the game by letting the ground send arbitrary monochrome images to the orbiter, including text and, well, graphics. The system used enough bandwidth that it operated on the KU band antenna, routing through Tedris. Depending on how nice you wanted the imagery to look, a single page would take between 1 and 16 minutes to uplink. So yeah, we're pretty spoiled these days. Tags worked, but it wasn't without fault. It's only been around for a few flights, and it's gotten jammed on several of them. First we've got wonky chairs, and now we've got paper jams. Soon the heads-up display is going to start throwing PC load letter errors. But the reason I bring this up is that on this flight, the old teleprinter system, perhaps unhappy with all the attention being doted on the new TAG system, decided to act up. On flight day 5, a wire in the teleprinter shorted out for one and a half seconds, and the device began shooting sparks and smoke into Columbia's mid-deck. That sounds pretty dramatic, and I'm sure it got the crew's attention, but in reality it wasn't too big of a problem. The relevant systems, including circuit protection and smoke detection, both noted the incident, but it was mild enough that neither system took any action. The crew unplugged the printer, and that was the end of it. The only impact to the mission was that the crew had to use a different plug for their suit fans during re-entry, so, like I said, no big deal. I just couldn't resist the chance to talk about something throwing sparks and smoke into the mid-deck, especially since it was a good way to finally introduce tags. And speaking of re-entry, is it that time already? The flight contained a few other little odds and ends, including the usual lineup of small experiments that studied the crew themselves, but the main thrust of the mission was the deployment of the classified payload. So after just a few days, the crew suited up, strapped back into their seats, and prepared to return home. Observing the re-entry today would be the Silts pod that we first saw back on STS-9. This was a specialized thermal camera mounted in a pod on the tip of Columbia's tail. Safely ensconced in its pod, the camera could keep an eye on the left wing to get a better idea of the thermal environment surrounding the orbiter during entry. This was the instrument's third of six flights, collecting data over a range of different entry conditions. And this would be a pretty interesting entry to observe, since it didn't go quite as smoothly as usual. Literally. Remember a few episodes back we discussed the difference between laminar and turbulent flow? As an everyday example, laminar flow is when you pour water out of a bottle, and it comes out in one smooth structure that almost looks like glass. That's the kind of nice, predictable flow that fluids folks like to work with. The alternative is turbulent flow. For this, imagine what happens to the air when a large truck drives by. The air flows in a whole bunch of different directions, causing unpredictable patterns. It's chaotic, difficult to simulate, and in the case of a hypersonic vehicle, it leads to additional heating. Despite moving at 25 times the speed of sound, much of the shuttle's entry was during a period of laminar flow. Nice, smooth, predictable airflow that the thermal protection system could more easily handle. But at some point, the environment would change, and the flow would transition from laminar to turbulent. Sometimes the whole vehicle would switch at once. 
and other times the back would go turbulent first and the laminar flow would sort of unzipper as the turbulence raced up the length of the vehicle. The timing of this transition was important. If you were to look at a graph of the orbiter's temperature over the course of the entry, you would see it steadily increase towards peak heating, then start to decrease, then suddenly jump instantly back up before slowly decreasing again. That jump was the moment that the air switched to turbulent flow, increasing the heating on the vehicle. So it was important that this happened as late as possible. As an example, on STS-26, the aft of Discovery transitioned from laminar to turbulent flow 18 minutes and 35 seconds after entry interface, with the boundary taking 20 seconds to work its way from the back to the front of the vehicle. On STS-5, the whole vehicle transitioned at once at 18 minutes and 45 seconds. But on this flight, while the forward section of Columbia would not transition until 20 minutes and 15 seconds after entry interface, the aft section switched to turbulent flow after only 15 minutes, leading to a longer and more intense period of heating than was typical. The cause? A tiny scrap of specialized fabric that was slightly out of place. Remember, the thermal protection system wasn't one large, smooth structure like the old capsules. It was composed of tens of thousands of small tiles. Small tiles that were stuck to a slightly curved surface. Between the curve, inevitable minor manufacturing and assembly problems, and wear and tear, tiny gaps would occasionally be found between the tiles. Rather than potentially make the problem worse by taking off a bunch of tiles and redoing everything, tiny slivers of ceramic alumina borosilica fabric saturated with thermal tile adhesive were wedged between the tiles. These aptly named gap fillers were a fraction of an inch thick and were able to adequately protect the tiny gaps between some of the tiles. It's impossible to be completely sure, but all evidence pointed to one of these gap fillers protruding slightly out of their gap. Very close to a vehicle moving through the air is a special area called the boundary layer. Just real quick, since this is a huge topic on its own, you're actually familiar with the boundary layer. Imagine if you taped a little piece of paper to the side of your car and then drove on the highway. It probably wouldn't move around too much. That's because it's safely in the boundary layer a thin region right near the skin of the vehicle. But if you were to tape it to the edge of your side mirror, it would flap around all over the place since it'd be out in the turbulent flow. So what probably happened with Columbia was a gap filler stuck out a little bit past the boundary layer, churning up the air, causing turbulent flow downstream. This also explains why we saw early turbulent flow in the aft of the spacecraft, but not the front. I know I keep bringing up Formula 1 lately, but the season's about to start, so it's on my mind. And this same phenomenon explains why a small scrap of debris stuck in an F1 car's front wing can completely devastate the performance of the car. Instead of feeding the wing and the rest of the aero surfaces on the car nice laminar flow, you're instead buffeting it with turbulent flow. It's a bad way to race, and it's a bad way to go through atmospheric entry. We'll see these gap fillers again, especially on STS-114, when we'll get a unique EVA thanks to one. But it just goes to show you how, when you're dealing with spaceflight, even the smallest details matter. Despite a slightly unusual entry, Columbia soon appeared safe and sound in the skies over Edwards Air Force Base. After five days, one hour, and nine minutes, Columbia gently touched down, rolling another 3,400 meters before coming to a stop. The landing was slightly unusual because Commander Shaw was instructed to land as gently as possible due to a technical problem with the landing gear. He became so focused on landing softly that
that he got a little tunnel vision about landing properly and took so long that he touched down at only 180 miles per hour, just above stalling speed for the orbiter. If that story sounds interesting and you want to hear more, I recommend checking out the blog of Wayne Hale, who was a flight director for dozens of shuttle missions. In fact, this was his very first mission as flight director, keeping things under control during the nighttime planning shift. If you haven't read his stuff before, it's well worth the effort. But in any case, slow landing or not, OV-102 was back home and STS-28 was in the books. Next time, we're flying with Atlantis again and sending off another interplanetary probe. Galileo Galilei changed our understanding of the heavens forever by using telescopes to get a closer look at Jupiter. The Galileo we'll be talking about is going to get a slightly closer look. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. (laughs) 